our text today, which will be in Numbers 21. So let's pray and ask God to uh, give us his help for this next hour. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is the revelation of truth and that it tells us of your son and of his goodness for us. Thank you that today as we explore the Old Testament, we can see the themes of your glorious, faithful, immutable love, even from uh, the beginning of the story of the Bible, uh, which is still true today. Please help me by your spirit to preach clearly and helpfully uh, and help uh, everyone in this room to be awake and enlivened to your truth and ready to receive truth so that we can be conformed into the image of your son. It's for your glory that I pray all these things in your name. Amen. When I was a young boy, I didn't dream of being an athlete or an astronaut. No, I dreamed of being a scientist. Now, I didn't know what a scientist was, but I knew one thing about scientists. Scientists perform experiments. And so it was my job as a budding scientist to perform as many experiments as I possibly could. And luckily, my parents had a house full of raw materials for me to experiment with. So early on, I uh, decided to create a carbon-neutral gas. I went out to my dad's lawnmower, emptied out the gas tank, and filled it with water and screws, and then left it there for him to discover when it was time for him to do the lawn mowing. In another experiment, I filled a small container with all the different materials I could find in my mom's kitchen, a little bit of flour, a little bit of vinegar, all sorts of fun stuff, and then put it under the couch. I wanted to see what would happen over time. Now, I forgot about it, but the um, carpet cleaner found it a few months later. Now, my parents could give you a lot of other stories, and that's not really the point. See, I wanted to learn how things worked, and my parents were blessed to be the recipients of my young genius. <laughs> By God's grace, I have God-fearing and gracious parents who handled these experiments with grace and mercy. But now that I myself am a parent of two small boys who both have the same desire to experiment, I see the dangerous place that I was putting myself in. You see, every time my kids do something, I have the opportunity to respond. In fact, just this morning, my two-year-old decided to see what would happen if you smash berries into a white carpet in his room. Luckily, I caught him right before this experiment took place. But I thought, well, there's a good illustration. See, the more dangerous or foolish or childish their actions, the more I need to be careful how I react. Because there's a million different things going on in my life that can affect how I respond to them. Each interaction is a chance for me to respond with grace and mercy and to be a shepherd of their hearts. But depending on what's happening to me, that can go any one of a number of ways. I am inconsistent, and I'm ashamed to admit that I don't always respond with the love and tenderness which I ought to have. And I think that I can safely say that's the experience of most of us in this room. Some of us may be very steady people, but in general, man is fickle and changing. We respond to our environment. We have good days and bad days, and we're always receiving what the world has to give to us, and we have to respond in the right way. You probably saw this on the way to church today. It doesn't really matter how good your Bible study time is or your prayer time is. Once you're on the road, your sanctification is being challenged. <laughs> and while that is our experience in our own lives and in our own hearts, we must be cautious that we don't read that kind of emotional fragility into our relationship with our Heavenly Father. 
See, as a child, I tested my earthly father every day, but all of us as God's children test him every day with our sin. We sin against our father, and we need to know how he responds. Well, what we see in our text today in Numbers 21 is that the God of the Bible is unchanging in his love and his care for his people. You see, unlike us, Yahweh is not given to fits or spells of emotion. He does not change. Even his name, as he declares in Exodus 3.14, Yahweh, I am who I am, he demonstrates the fact that he is steady and unchanging. Hebrews 1.12 says, but you are the same and your years will have no end. Unlike us, God is immutable. He remains who he is and acts consistently no matter the circumstance. Now, that's the kind of theological truth that we can all sit in church and nod our heads at. But what does that really mean? What it, how can we understand that practically? And I think an illustration will help. Think about your relationship with the sun, the one in the sky. It hangs in the sky, and depending on your position on earth, you get to experience it differently. In the heat of the midday, especially here in Southern California, you again get your sanctification challenged as it tries to burn you to death. Right? But in the morning and in the evening, the sun and the sunrise and the sunset cause you to wonder at God's glory and beauty. In the winter, it doesn't warm you in the same way. And if a cloud passes in front of it, you don't see it. But does this mean that the sun is changing? No, the sun is remaining. When the, when the sun goes down at the end of the day, has it turned off? Has it disappeared? No, we have changed in relation to the sun. What changes is you, not the Son. And this is, thus it is with our Heavenly Father. When we come to Him in sin, in rebellion, in disobedience, we will experience His love in a specific way. But if we come to Him in repentance and humility, we experience that love in a still different way, don't we? In all of this, our Heavenly Father is the same, He is immutable. And in the book of Numbers, and in our text specifically, God wants to put this consistent, immutable character on display for the comfort and hope of his people. So I want to get our bearings in the book of Numbers, and then we'll jump into our wonderful text. See, as we continue this study of the Pentateuch this fall, I have the honor and pleasure of introducing the book of Numbers. Now, I think that the fourth book of the Pentateuch suffers from what I call after Leviticus syndrome. As the last few preachers have noted, by the time you're done with Leviticus, you've really been challenged on your Bible reading plan, haven't you? And there's a temptation to maybe just jump over the Gospels for a little bit, get a little Jesus time in, and I'll come back to Numbers, I will. But then you get to Numbers, and first of all, it's called Numbers, and then you see, no, there's actually Numbers at the beginning of this book. The first four chapters is compelling, interesting census data. That leaves us often to forget numbers, doesn't it? To pass on. We'd, we'd rather spend some time in Deuteronomy, I think. But let me tell you what. As an accountant, I love numbers. But that's not why I love this book. See, this book is precious, and it should be precious to us, because in numbers, we get to see the goodness and grace of God put on display. See, numbers should be summarized this way. God is faithful when his people are not. We wouldn't say that Numbers is a happy book. From a human perspective, it's certainly the darkest book in the Pentateuch because in Numbers, what we see is that 
This is the part of the story where Israel finally gives in to her sin and rebellion, and God finally allows Israel to feel the consequences of that sin. In chapters 1 through 10, there's sort of a positive beginning. We see that Israel is trying to obey Leviticus and Exodus. They're arranging their camp around the tabernacle, trying to put Yahweh at the center. But in chapters 11 and 12, they give in to their complaining and their rebellion. And this comes to a head in chapter 13 because as Israel nears Canaan, nears the promised land, they have the opportunity to go out. And you know the story. They send spies into Canaan. And when those spies return, they have a fearful report of the Canaanites. And rather than look back at the consistency of God's love and move forward in faith, Israel wavers. They step away and they say, maybe God has this plan wrong. This is devastating rebellion with devastating consequences. See, Yahweh does spare the rebellious Israelites from destruction, but he does send this consequence, which I want to read to you in chapter 14, verses 20 through 23. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. So God says the punishment for this rebellion is that the first generation of Israel, those who were saved from Egypt and promised this beautiful land, will not receive it. They will die here in this wilderness, which they have grown to hate so much. In other words, the sojourning of Israel, the journey, the wandering of Israel has only just begun. And the next six chapters from Numbers 15 to 20 depict decades of wandering in the wilderness, marked by continual, repeated rebellion, not just from the people, but even from the leaders. These chapters are marked by the darkness of Israel's failure to trust Yahweh. And this is what you need to have in mind as we go into our text today. Our text today is in this cloud of gloom, of rebellion and pain. Israel has suffered for more than 35 years at this point in the wilderness. But the overwhelming testimony of the book of Numbers is that Israel, all of Israel, has failed to meet the covenant standard of God. So our question is, how will God respond? Well, in our text today, Numbers 21, 1 through 9, God showcases the fact that he is faithful even when his people are failures. God is faithful when his people fail. We see three different examples of Yahweh's covenant faithfulness. First, in verses 1 through 3, Yahweh is faithful to protect his people. And then in verses 4 through 6, Yahweh is faithful to punish his people. And finally, in verses 7 through 9, Yahweh is faithful to purify his people. So if you're taking notes, 1 through 3, protect, 4 through 6, punish, and 7 through 9, purify. So let's look at verses 1 through 3, God's faithfulness to protect his people. Read with me. Numbers 21, verse 1. When the Canaanite, 
the king of Arad, who lived in the Negeb, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed give these people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. Now the king of Arad may not stand out to you as an important biblical character, but you should realize that there's some pretty significant things going on here. Because you remember I talked about in Numbers 14, God judged Israel and said that they would wander in the wilderness. Well, when Israel heard of this consequence, they decided to take matters into their own hands. And they tried to take Canaan on their own strength without the blessing of Yahweh. And Numbers 14 tells us that the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came out and destroyed Israel, fought Israel, defeated them. So this is the beginning of their punishment. They attacked the hill country and were defeated. They were rebellious to God and they were punished. Well, the king of Arad is the leader of those same hill people. So this is at the, towards the end of the sojourning. As Israel is getting ready to enter the promised land, they again come up with this bookend of the attack of the hill people. Thirty-odd years later, the hill people hear that Israel is nearby, and they decide, let's go at it again. Let's go attack them again. Let's go see what we can do. And again, they are victorious. They capture some of Israel's people. They take prisoners of war. But notice in verse 2, how does Israel respond this time? And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give these people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. See, this verse is packed with intensive language. Israel acts in complete devotion to Yahweh, begging him to act in faithfulness, begging him to love his chosen people and to rescue those who have been captured. Now, if you're familiar with the language of Joshua, you know that when Israel went to conquer Canaan, there were many times where they would find a city and devote it to destruction. But this is different. Israel are not conquerors. They are still cursed. It's not their time to go into Canaan. It's not their time to take over this land. So they know that, though, don't they? Because they don't say, Lord, we'd like to settle down. They say, if you give us this place, we will devote it to destruction. We will offer it to you as an offering, as a consecration. And what they're doing there is they're saying, we know that you have a plan for us and that we are still being punished. We will not go against your plan. We will be faithful. Please just help us get our people back. They're showing submission to God's plan and will. They're asking God to help them maintain his covenant people. And so then we see the first instance of God's covenant faithfulness as he protects his people in verse 3. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them in their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. There's some interesting juxtaposition here. In verse 1, the king of Arad hears of Israel coming. And in verse 3, Yahweh hears Israel's cry. The king of Arad attacks, but God defeats. And then in verse 2, the people say, Lord, give us this people. Give us this enemy for you. And in verse 3, he does. He gives them. And Israel is faithful. While they have failed to protect themselves and have fallen, 
under this attack, they are faithful to do what they promise God to do. They devote the cities to destruction as an act of consecration. What does it mean when it says the place was called Hormah? That's Moses' way of telling us how soundly they defeated these Canaanites. See, the word Hormah means destruction. So this would be like us renaming the place Destructionville. There's nothing left. The place is annihilated. God's enemies are defeated and his people are protected. So even in the gloom of the first 20 chapters of Numbers, the rebellion and the pain and the suffering, chapter 21 gives us this tiny sliver, this ray of hope for God's people. Because while the previous chapters have been overwhelming us with Israel's unfaithfulness, here we see them for a moment trust God and go to him as they ought. Israel recognizes that they are helpless, so they come to God desperate for help, and he helps them. He acts according to their expectations. He is good, and the goodness of Yahweh is on display. He reminds his people of their love for him, of his love for them. He reminds his people that their faith is good. They have good faith in a sure God. But unfortunately, this good feeling doesn't last long. We're going to see that while God has been faithful to protect his people in verses 1 through 3, in verses 4 through 6, we see that he must be faithful for a different reason. He must be faithful to punish his people. Read verses 4 through 6 with me now. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God. And against Moses, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Now, if you're like me, you read this and you say, that, that sounds more familiar. That's how this goes. Israel rebels, God punishes, right? This is the 14th time in the story of Israel since they left Egypt that they have rebelled against Yahweh. There's a pattern here. We've seen this again and again and again. But why are they complaining this time? What's the reason? We need to understand this first part of the verse from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Why do they need to go around? Where are they? Well, if you know where the hill country is, it's on the far west side of the Sinai Peninsula in the desert. It's right under the promised land. But God has told Moses that Israel needs to go to Moab. This is the place where they prepared to go into the promised land, prepared for conquest. But in between God's people and Moab is the nation of Edom. Now, if you remember your Genesis, you know that Edom are the descendants of Esau. They're not exactly friendly with God's people. And so in chapter 20 of Numbers, Moses actually went to the king of Edom and he said, please understand, we just need to get through to Moab. Will you allow these people to travel through? Will you give us safe passage? And the king of Edom says, no, we will not. So Israel has to now go all the way around Edom, which means they're going to go all the way through the Sinai Peninsula back up and around the other side. This is over 70 miles through the desert. Unless you think about how long it takes you to get 70 miles on I-5, recognize that this is 2 million people on foot in the desert. And every morning they have to wake up and tear down the tabernacle, and every night they have to set it back up. So 70 miles through the desert is no small task. 
This would hurt. This feels like salt in the wound at this point. Really, we have to go all the way around, all the way back. And can you imagine going back to the Red Sea for these first generation Israelites who still remain? They go back to the place where Yahweh worked that wonderful miracle to rescue his people. That was the moment where they saw what God was willing to do to save them. And months later, they rejected him at the gates of the promised land. This is a bitter pill to swallow. This would be sobering. And all these compounding issues build up in the hearts of the Israelites. And what do they do? They complain. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Does Israel ever stop complaining? Do they ever stop rebelling? Have they learned nothing at this point? I think especially in Christian circles, it's easy for us to think of Israel in almost entirely negative light, especially at this point in the story. But you need to put yourself in Israel's shoes. You need to consider what's happening. You've been wandering around a desert called the Negev, which today is still known as being a pretty terrible place to hang out. You've been wandering there for 30 years. Now, you were a slave in Egypt, and that was no good, but there you had a bed, you had food, and you had a job. Here, you wander while you wait for grandma and grandpa to die so you can go to the promised land. Think about that. Put yourself there. You're simply wandering around a desert waiting for your loved ones to pass away, waiting for God to take his hand of judgment off you. Oh, and there's no food. You're in a desert, right? There's no water. If you want water, Moses has to perform a miracle to get it. For the last 38 years, you've been eating some weird bread powder that falls from the sky every morning. You just want some variety, right? You just want a little bit of change. Oh, and another thing, every nation that surrounds you wants to kill you and hates you. See, it's easy for us to judge the Israelites when we just read through these stories, but if you were there, if this was you, how would you respond? There was traffic coming to church. How did you respond? Imagine that traffic for 30 years in the desert with no air conditioning. <laughs> and all you got is some saltine crackers in the back seat. How would you start to feel? You see, friends, Israel is being human. Their position is actually understandable from a human perspective. Let us be cautious to judge them, lest we be judged. Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 10, 9 through 12. He says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them, to Israel as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So let us, rather than judge, put ourselves there. Imagine ourselves as those same complaining Israelites because I guarantee you, you would be. Back to verse 5 of our text. Look at the language used. It says that they spoke against God and Moses. And this word for spoke isn't normal chit-chat. This is 
divisive. This is whispering, gossiping, anger. This is the kind of language that spreads through a group of people who are angry with their leaders. This is rebellion. And unlike verse 2 above, Israel doesn't speak to Yahweh, do they? They speak against God. You see, Israel were very aware of the covenant nature of their relationship with God. Yahweh was the covenant-loving Father who had rescued them from Egypt and promised them the land. But here, they don't talk about God in that way. They don't speak his name. They use a word which could be used for any God, any deity, any idol. Even in their conversation about him, they defame him. And they present their discontent to one another, as we so often do. They complain in the ranks. Look at this contradiction. Look at what they're complaining yields. They say, there is no food and water, and we loathe this worthless food. Well, wait, so there is food. It's just the food that we have we don't like. See, the discontent in their hearts makes them disrespect, dishonor, and not enjoy the good, gracious gift of God. When they say we hate this worthless food, the language there implies our souls are exhausted with this meaningless food. Meaningless? Manna? Without this food, they would all be dead. This is the most meaningful, practical thing God has given them all these years. And they're casting it aside. Their frustration with their current predicament boils over into a frustration with God himself. And again, lest we judge, see yourself. See your own lack of thankfulness for God's provision, for his kindness, for his mercy. Think of the good gifts that you have that you take for granted. It's hot in here and we loathe this worthless air conditioning. What? All these little, small things that God gives us that are so good that we take for granted. And when we complain, we're throwing them back in his face. More likely than not, every one of us would be taking part in this complaint. Israel's response is both understandable in its humanity and sobering in its sinfulness. So let's look at verse 6. How does God respond? Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Notice the lack of communication. Yahweh doesn't give a word to Moses. Moses doesn't come to the people. There's just action. It just happens. People die. And Israel should have known, right? They should have known at this point. You complain, you get punished. God has opened up the earth to swallow up rebels in the past. He's sent the destroyer to kill. He's had Levites kill. There's been plagues for this kind of sin. But here, once again, he must respond with a punishment. And guys, we've heard this story before, but I mean, think about this punishment. Imagine the last time you were camping and imagine fiery snakes infesting your camp. This is not something to gloss over. This is a terrifying and strange punishment from God. This would sober people up immediately, wouldn't it? It would change the conversation but why is God's response so intense? Why in the world does he start killing people with snakes? If we can understand 
the response of his people and the way that they complain. Why? We get it. We could be there. We could be complaining, but God has never sent a snake to bite me for being grumpy. Why is he doing this? Because Israel's response to their problems is only understandable if they aren't used to the covenant love of God. Let me say that again. If you are used to the covenant love of God, the covenant provision and care and protection of God, how could you ever complain? Israel does know better by now. Israel has seen time and time again the glorious goodness and power and love of God put on display. But they still remain stuck in their humanity. They still are stuck in their thinking. They remain trapped in this human response to adversity to give up hope and to complain. Why are they there? They're there because they complained. They're there because they rebelled. They should see this as another example of how badly they need God, how dangerous it is to question God's goodness. This is God's faithfulness. This punishment is God's goodness, his love for his people. Hebrews 12 tells us, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. See, the author of Hebrews quotes these passages from the Proverbs to remind you and me that punishment from God is love. It is consistent covenant faithfulness. And so just as God was faithful to protect his people in the first three verses, so we see here he is again faithful to punish. And like we said, their experience of this faithfulness is very different. But God has not changed. His love has not changed. Even in their sin, his love has not wavered. It has stayed the same. It looks different and they experience it differently. Again, in this story, Israel is helpless, and they add faithlessness to it. But yet again, God, our God, is faithful. As we spoke about it in the beginning, this may look different, but this is faithful love from God. So now, let's look at our last three verses and see one more example of God's faithfulness, his faithfulness to purify his people, starting in verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So Yahweh's gracious punishment has yielded the result it should, right? The consequences for their sin cause Israel to repent. They come to Moses and say, we were wrong. They come to him and ask him to intercede. They say the gap between us and God is Great, it is vast. Moses, will you bring us together? Will you come to him for us and ask him for forgiveness? Now, I think it's tempting, especially when we are coming to this judgmentally, to question Israel's repentance. Of course they apologize now. There's fiery snakes in the camp, right? Anything you can do at this point, you're going to try. But I think 
that Moses is telling us that they were truly repentant. Because first, they come back to speak to Yahweh again. When it says the Lord in all caps, that's them coming to God in his covenant name, his covenant faithfulness. They're saying, Lord, we were wrong. You are our God. You are our king. Please help us. Please forgive us. And second, they explain and admit their sin. They don't say, we don't know what's going on, but we want it to stop. They say, no, we know exactly what we did. We spoke against God and his leader. There's a sign of true remorse there. They don't just run to Moses and say, take it away. And finally, we should take Moses' reaction into account. A good leader would question them if he doubted their motives. But he, he does exactly what they ask, right? He goes straight to God. And so I think we should see this as true repentance, true apology from his people. So Moses intercedes for the people in response to their repentance. And what is the result? Verse 8, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. That was not what you were expecting if you were Israel. This is a strange response. And you're used to it now because you've heard this story before. But this is odd. Yahweh tells Moses, go make a bronze copy of these terrible snakes and put it on a flagpole in the middle of the camp. And then tell everybody to go look at it. And if they look at it, I'll heal them. Is God telling Moses to make an idol? No, he's not. He's telling them, we're going to need a symbol of my faithfulness. We're going to need something to be erected to show these people how good I am. Because for some reason, they're not getting it. So put up this symbol. And when they go, when they look and they act in faith... I will heal them. But there's something else about Yahweh's response that I want you to notice. Look back at verse 7. What does Israel ask God to do? Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. God did not answer their prayer. He did not take away the serpents. The serpents remain. In fact, he tells Moses to make another serpent. See, God doesn't rescue them from the consequences of their sin, but what he does do is he makes sure that the bite of the snake is no longer a death sentence. See, God does this because even though his people are repentant, they also want relief from their consequences. And God doesn't promise that. He demonstrates that he forgives but shows that the consequences for sin are not completely erased. As these consequences remain, they will remind the people of their need for him. And brothers and sisters, how often when we repent, is there a part of us that thinks of that repentance as a transaction? Thinks when I go to God and I repent, I really am sorry, but maybe he'll let me off the hook. Maybe I get out of this one. Right? That, it's so hard not to do that, but we cannot be assured that the consequences will go away. That's not what we should take away from this story. See yourself again in the Israelites. And what is the purpose of this bronze snake? The text is very explicit. If you are bit and you see the bronze snake, you will live. You will no longer die from this painful experience. God provides his people what they need, even if it's not what they asked for. And so finally, look at verse 9, the last verse. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Simple ending, right? Moses does what God says, and it works. But there's one thing we need to see in this last verse. 
Because there's a different word for seeing. See, when Yahweh said they would see the snake and live, in verse 9 it says they had to look on the snake. Look, see, Moses is highlighting there needs to be an intentionality to their looking at the snake. You can't just see it out of the corner of your eye and be saved because this look is an act of faith. Think about this for a minute. Put yourself there again. You've been bitten by a snake. Your friends and family have already died. Everyone in the camp is trying everything they can do to be saved from this. They've tried all the remedies, all the medicines, everything they can think of. Nothing is working. You are preparing yourself to die. And all of a sudden, remember, we're in the desert, your tent flap opens and someone peeks in and says, Moses has had an answer from Yahweh. There's a snake on a pole. You go look at that and you won't die. Now, you've tried everything at this point, but part of you is saying, a what on a what? A snake on a pole? What? What? I mean, this is preposterous from a human perspective. This makes no sense. And see, why this is faith is because this only works if God has planned it. This only makes sense if it is God's work. And you can bet that some people died in the wilderness because they couldn't bring themselves to believe that this would really work. It wasn't enough for them to be walking through the tent and accidentally see the snake and now no longer die. If you had the right view of Yahweh, though, when you heard this, you would run to that snake because you would remember the goodness of Yahweh in all of your sojournings and you would rush to that bronze serpent and look in faith. You would look in belief that God would do what he said, no matter how strange it sounds to you. You would look because nothing else worked. And then you would be healed. And so we see at the conclusion of this passage, another example of God's faithfulness. He has protected, he has punished, and in the end, he purifies. See, in these nine verses, we have seen that God is faithful all the time. When Israel was captured, God was faithful to rescue them. When Israel was rebellious, God was faithful to discipline them. When Israel was repentant, God was faithful to rescue them. No matter the state of God's people, God is consistent, friends. He is faithful. He is steadfast. All that he is, his love, his goodness, his kindness, his grace, all of these things are consistently given to his people. And what kind of people? Helpless people. In the first story, they're trapped, they're defeated, and they need help from God to fight back. In the second, they're rebellious, and they needed to be disciplined by God to be humbled. And finally, they're dying, and they need to be healed by God to have life. What this passage shows us is the faithfulness of God and the helplessness of man. If the story of Numbers is the faithfulness of God to sustain and love his people in their rebellion, then these nine verses are just a perfect little summary of that whole storyline. And that's really the storyline of the whole Old Testament, isn't it? We need help and God will help. We don't know how until we get to the Gospels, but we know that he will be faithful. Why does this matter? This matters because all of these truths are as true today as they were then. 
You are still helpless to save yourself. You are still helpless to avoid the consequences of your sin. And God is the only solution to this problem. He is the only one who can rescue us. And he does. God was faithful to his covenant people in Numbers 21. And he is faithful to his covenant people here today, now. See, during worship this morning, Michael read John 3 for us. And I want you to turn there with me as we conclude. See, John 3, you know this famous story of Jesus and Nicodemus. I would be a fool to try to preach all of this now. There's so much going on here. But I want to focus on one particular aspect. Because in this story, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that his thinking is too constrained to this world. There are cosmic, eternal, spiritual events at play. Read verse 12 with me. John 3, 12. This is Jesus speaking. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. See, Jesus uses our story today as a springboard to his gospel, to his good news. Jesus is telling Nicodemus to see what God did in that little story from Numbers and blow it up. Make it bigger than just Israel and God. Make it all people and God. Every tribe and tongue and nation where God's people are. All the principles of our text today apply not just to Israel in the wilderness, but to you and I here now. Just as Israel was helpless then, so you are now. Just as Israel was dying in the pain of the serpent's bite, so our world dies from the pain of sin brought by that ultimate serpent, Satan. And just as those Israelites were helpless to save themselves, to rescue themselves from their helpless plight, so too is our world today. Just as Israel needed remedy, so do we, so does this earth. And just as that remedy for Israel was lifted up in the wilderness on a pole, so was Christ. The only response that will affect healing is to look with faith, faith that our, in our helpless state, the immutable, perfect love of God will provide purification for our sins. Brothers and sisters, do you see the beauty of the gospel in our text? In this Old Testament text, 3,000 years ago, God was laying the, the groundwork for the gospel. And it climaxes in John 3, 16, which you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See, Israel's problem was physical, but the real problem, the bigger problem, isn't just physical, it's spiritual. Just like in Numbers 21, as those serpents still roam, we still face the consequences for sin. Death is still the enemy. But the ultimate, the eternal consequence, eternal death, Jesus has made a way. Our immutable Father, the Father of Israel, who is our Father, has provided a way by which all of his people 
can find rest for their souls. The love that God provided for Israel on that day in the wilderness, he now provides for his people in every tribe, in every nation, all around the world, in his son, Jesus Christ. So today, this morning, you must ask yourself, do I look to Christ? For the believer in this room, for the faithful Christian, who sojourns on this earth as they wait for the next, do you still look to Christ? Do you recall your helpless state? Do you read Israel's sojournings and say, that was me and is me apart from Jesus? Do you recognize how helpless you really were? Do you remember that? Or has the sanctification which God has done in your life blinded you to your helpless state? Have you forgotten how badly you needed him? Don't confuse God's work in you now and let you begin to think that you have worked out your justification, that you played a part in being saved because God did the work in you. You were helpless. You were dying. And he gave you the faith to look on Christ. Be encouraged. Continue to look on Christ. Continue to remember the love and the goodness of Christ. But for the person who professes Christ while walking in darkness, the person who would say they were a believer while they know that their heart truly still loves the world. You have not looked upon Christ and you have fooled maybe everyone in this room, but you have not fooled him. You are still dying. Your death is still imminent for you. And just being here in this room today, just being at Grace Community Church is not enough. It will not save you. Don't look to me. Don't look to Mike. Don't look to John MacArthur. Don't look to your shepherd. Look on Christ. And don't look on yourself. See yourself in Israel. See your need. See how desperately you need Jesus. You will die from the poison of sin in your veins. Admit it. Cling to him. If you profess Christ while walking in darkness, repent today and truly look to Christ. I beg you. And finally, for the unbeliever who does not profess Christ, who has never really known Christ or looked to him, you look on Christ and you look on eternal life. There's no other way. Only Jesus who came to this earth and lived a perfect life and died that sinless death can save you because in his death he paid the penalty that you deserve. He ate up that death that is the punishment for sin and he gives you the chance for eternal life if you are his. You must repent. You must repent. Please understand, you know the sin in your heart. You know the venom in your veins. You see this world and you see a world which hates God. Do not stay in this world any longer. Turn to him. Look as the Israelites looked to the only solution. Admit that nothing you do is enough. And let us all, Christian or not, admit that nothing we do is enough. We need God to help us. And just as God was faithful then, all those years ago, he has not changed one bit. 
Neither have we, so we need his help. Our God, the God of the universe, is faithful no matter what. He has provided a solution for his people who have no hope without his intervention. That hope is Christ. Look to him and believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you for being the God of Israel and our God. Thank you for extending that love which you showed them in the wilderness to the world, to every tribe and tongue and nation, to call all of your elect, all of your sheep home to be with you. Lord, help us to see our neediness. Even if we are saved, help us to see how badly we still need you, how desperately we must cling to you and look to you. And I pray for the souls in this room that do not know you. Please, please help them to look upon you, look upon Christ. Help us, Lord, today. We desperately need you, and we are so thankful for you and for your incredible, unchanging love, no matter what. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.